Welcome to Preaching in Season, a series designed to help ministers in their work of reading and preaching the Word. In this episode, Bible scholar Dr. Mark Hamilton leads us in some reflections on the passages of Scripture that many churches will read in preparation for the second Sunday in Lent, 2022. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this third in a series of podcasts on Preaching in Season, an exploration of the text that the Church will encounter during the season of Lent. This is the discussion for the second Sunday in Lent. If you recall our discussions earlier, I noted that Lent is not just a time of giving up things or of uh, spending our time wallowing in remorse and self-pity. It's a time of reorientation. It's a time to clear away the garbage that gets in the way of our lives, of, of hearing the joy that will be announced at Easter. Uh, it's a kind of, it's an exercise in house cleaning. And so uh, if you encounter it that way, and this is useful to you, I'm very glad for that. But whether you think of Lent that way or not, the text that that I want to talk about in this series are of use to us as we explore growth in our own Christian lives. Uh, the, the, the church this week will hear the following text, Genesis 15, 1 through 12 and 17 through 18, or maybe you'll be lucky and the church won't make the cut there. Uh, Psalm 27, Philippians 3, 17 through 4, 1, and Luke 13, 31 through 35. So I'll take up some of these texts. Uh, first, the first I'll take up is from Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse beginning in verse 17. Paul writes to this young church, this, this group of people whom he had converted in the Roman colony of Philippi. And he tries to remind them of the basics of the Christian faith, uh, including how they interact with each other. And we'll return to this uh, in an, another podcast. But he says in uh, verse 17, brothers and sisters, join, join in imitating me, which is a bold move on behalf of the teacher. But the teacher, Paul, has embraced his role as teacher and especially has spent enormous amount of energy trying to imitate Christ. So we're not just imitating a freelancer, we're imitating Christ if we imitate Paul. Observe those who live according to this example you have seen in us, for many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have told you often of them, and now I tell you even with tears. I don't know exactly whom he has in mind. He doesn't name names here. Other places in the New Testament do name names, most of which don't mean anything to us because we don't know the stories of those people. But here it's, it's anonymous. We don't know, are, the, are these people setting out to be enemies of the cross? I mean, certainly in the Roman Empire, the proclamation of a crucified Savior would have struck many people as crazy or pernicious. And so there would have been enemies in that sense. Or is it possible that they, they, they think they're really imitators of Christ, but, but they're more interested in his glory and his resurrection and they... They downplay the suffering of the cross and downplay suffering in their own lives. I, I don't know which it is. You know, frankly, there aren't many of the first in our world today. There are some. There are a lot of the second uh, because there are many of us who really just seek the glory. 
we see we see Christianity as a path to glory. And we forget that that path leads through suffering, leads through Golgotha. I don't know what he has in mind, but he does he does say some things. He takes the direction he wants to take in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. And he goes along in this vein, and he tells them to stand firm because he loves them. It's There are many parts of that little paragraph that are interesting and striking, but one of the things that's most striking is this business about transformation. You know, Paul lived in a world in which bodies were subject to the the forces of the powerful. Bodies could be conformed. He served a Lord whose body was so taken over by the state and by the power of the state that it was crucified. It was mangled and abused and, and nearly obliterated and finally killed. So for him, there has to be a sense that the body it, it deserves some reflection. You know, the early Christians didn't believe that, that Christians just had a body. It's not, that, it's not only the soul that's important. The body is also important because it's part of a psychosomatic wholeness that we all are. We, we, are, we, we don't just have bodies, we are bodies. And we have many parts. Uh, but there is a, a connection amongst our body and mind and soul and spirit, and these are not just separate things. The body is not just a house for the soul. And so a core Christian doctrine is about the resurrection of the dead, which is the idea that God does not forget the whole person that we are and does not allow death itself to, be a, to destroy that whole person but rather in ways that we can name but not really understand, reconstitutes that whole person. And so Paul brings forward that, that idea, that there is the resurrection of the dead. Now, I, I think that's a very hopeful thing in our world because like the ancient world, in the modern world, we wrestle with what sort of body we're supposed to be and have. Uh, and there's a strong pressure toward body conformity, uh, mainly from people, sometimes from people who think they're being biblical when really all they're doing is reinforcing the body ideas of two or three generations ago. What we have in the New Testament and what we have in this text is the sense that all of our bodies are problematic, every one of them, and all of our bodies are subject to renewal and to redemption. That what we have here it may be broken through sickness uh, because we don't fit some cultural norm in some way. But those that reality, if it is a reality, is not what defines who we are. What we what defines who we are is that all of our bodies, every one of them, is subject to renewal because every one of our bodies is the location for the encounter with God as well as with each other. That, I think, is a hopeful message and deserves a lot more reflection. Uh, another text that we get to this week is Luke 13, 
which is about repentance in the, the strict sense of that word, a turning away from evil. Uh, and we, we talked about in the first podcast how turning, which is what Lent's about, uh, is a lot broader than just turning away from evil or, or turning away from sin that we have willfully done. It's, it's bigger than that. But in chapter 13 of Luke, we get a discussion of, of sins that people have willfully done. Uh, G Jesus has been reading the newspaper, so to speak. He's listened to the evening news. And so he uh, encounters a couple of stories. He says, he hears this story about a massacre that Pilate had carried out amongst Galileans in Jerusalem while they were sacrificing. We don't know much about that story, but apparently it was, on the, it was in the news at the time. And so Jesus hears this story and his response is, do you think these people were worse than the rest of us? Which, you know, Luke doesn't fill in the gaps entirely, but it seems like the reasonable explanation is that people thought these must be especially wicked people to, to perish in such a way. And Jesus says, no, that's not the case. We could all perish if we don't turn. And then he goes on in that discussion by telling the story of a fig tree planted in a vineyard. It's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. It reminds you of a similar but slightly different story back in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 5, in which Isaiah sings a song about his beloved one who has planted a vineyard. And you think, ah, oh, this is going to be like the Song of Solomon. We're going to be in love poetry territory. But not so, because the, the song is about how the, the, his friend planted a vineyard and was hoping for wine, good wine, and had done everything right, good plants, good soil, good fencing, good, good husbandry practices, done it all right, and the wine is absolutely terrible. You know, nail polish removal kind of wine, absolutely wretched. You just hope it goes to vinegar so you can get something out of it. It's terrible. And so he decides he has to start over. The book of Isaiah, of course, uh, wants to make sure that the reader, or Isaiah's hearers, uh, understand the point of the parable. And that is, he says, the, the, the wine and the vines are Judah and Jerusalem. You know, God did everything right and wanted the vineyard to be good. And the truth is, the, the vintage is just wretched. And therefore, he has to start over. Well, that's a very unhopeful text in lots of ways, a very painful text. Jesus must have known that text. He doesn't quite cite it because now it's not a vineyard, but it's a fig tree in a vineyard. And he's going to, uh, in, this, in the parable, we're going to get rid of the fig tree because it's useless. It's worked, it's grown three years. There's no fruit on it. Many of us have had that experience in our own yards, right? We plant a fruit tree and we hope and hope. And sometimes they work and they're wonderful and sometimes they're sterile. And sometimes we think they're sterile are not going to be very productive and suddenly they are. And so that's, that's kind of the context of this little parable. It's interesting because in it, the, um, the keeper of the vineyard, the, the, the farm manager, says to the master who has instructed him to tear up the fig tree, says, would you give me one more year? You know, let me, let, me, let me work on it a bit. I'll work on the soil and we'll see what we can do. Can you give me one more year? 
Jesus tells that story because, like so many of the stories in the Gospels, the parables are, or, or other kinds of statements are susceptible of misunderstanding. So the way you clarify the meaning is not by, by spelling out the meaning, but by telling another story. One possible misunderstanding might be that, that God is eager to punish and uh, is just waiting for us to slip up so he can have a, a reason to do so. The parable says, not so. God is not eager to punish. Not at all. Quite to the contrary. God is looking for an excuse not to discipline people, not to make us pay for our sins. Uh, and really brings about punishment in the biblical view of things only when our sins are so overwhelming that they're hurting a lot of other people and and not to bring down their consequences on us is to perpetuate the pain of other people so there there is this theme of divine patience and the parable is about that as well and that that's helpful to remember in a season of turning that that you know we don't have to do it instantly necessarily we need to be headed in the right direction but the solution may not be may not always be immediate now we turn backward to the the old testament text which picked up some of these same things or rather lay them out for the first time uh psalm psalm 27 is it's a fascinating text. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? It sounds like a very much a bravado, macho kind of text, but of course we don't, it's not anything of the sort. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So synonymous parallelism. We've just said the same thing twice. When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh. I mean, remember the Psalms are full of poetic imagery. I, I doubt seriously that uh, this person is worried about cannibalism in his community or her community. It's, it's simply a, a very graphic image about, about total so social isolation, about being marginalized by the people around you. That they, it's as though they're eating, again, eating me up. Or, and then he shifts the imagery slightly, an army encamped against him. It's a very similar idea that I'm, I'm in deep trouble. And the world is, world is very much out for me. As the old saying goes, it's, it's not paranoia if they really are out to get you. And in the Psalms, there is that sense that one of the ways we experience the loss of God is when we experience social isolation or the alienation of people. Now, we're, we're reflecting on these texts in the middle of a worldwide pandemic that has killed several million people uh, in spite of our best efforts of medical science, partly because, uh, well, we refuse to follow advice and to do what we were supposed to do. But partly because viruses have a way of killing people sometimes. And so we have been through this sense of isolation. Many of us know it very personally, know it up close, and wonder how, how we will proceed in the future. I think this psalm gives us a few clues. Because notice what he says in verse 4, One thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after, 
to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in the temple. What do you do with a text like that? It's a, it's a theme that appears in various psalms. I mean, most famously in Psalm 23 at the end, where the psalmist expects to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, which is not about heaven. It's about, it's about the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, though the later tradition sort of made it more metaphorical and thought of it as a, the eternal dwelling with God. But it, it is a, a strand in the piety of the psalms, the idea that that we that we will have a connection to the temple itself and to the goings-on in the temple, to the life of prayer and song and sacrifice that will orient us and bring us, bring us hope, bring us a sense of belonging. You have that here. You wonder, are we, to are we talking about a priest who expects to live near the temple, not actually technically in the temple, but, you know, in the neighborhood close enough? Are we talking about a lay person? who is going to buy a house next to the temple, or about a lay person who, who thinks of this already as metaphorical. I'm going to, I'm going to live inside the, the world of the temple. I'm going to inhabit the sorts of prayers that I see in the temple. I think it's hard to decide among those meanings as the original meaning of the text, even if there is a single original meaning. But the, but the the sentiment is is one that I think we can understand, and that is this person wants to surround herself or himself with the things that will bring hope. Notice, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I think that's very much a Linton theme, and it's a theme, of course, we will get to full, in a more full-blown way at Easter, the sense that... Um, we, we can contemplate many things in our lives. We can focus on any number of objects in the world, some good, some bad, some neutral. But the ultimate source of beauty is God. And the contemplation of God is the highest human goal, the, the highest thing of which we are capable. It is what differentiates us from the animals, who, as far as we know, uh, pray in very limited ways, certainly differently than we do, if they pray at all. So, um, so what does this text mean for us going forward? Well, I think it does mean that. Seek the contemplation of God and seek others who are engaged in that same contemplation. We, we know we are surrounded by neighbors who are full of anger and frustration we, many of us have been profoundly disappointed with the communities of which we are part, and maybe with ourselves, too. But how do we go forward? We do not go forward by simply re-entering those situations and pretending that everything is okay. We go forward by reorienting ourselves to the things that most truly matter. And that brings me to the last text, which is Genesis 15. It's one of these stories that we see in Genesis in which God makes promises to Abraham. He had called, God had called Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis to leave his homeland and go to a place he would be shown. <laughs> you know, kind of, uh, we're turning off the GPS now, just get on the highway and head out. 
And, and he had done that. But the promises that God had made had not yet come true. And so in chapter 15, we get this vision. God appears to Abram. The Lord appears to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, he says. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram doesn't say, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. He says, you know, actually, I have a question about that. <sighs> if you don't mind, I have a question. And he clears his throat and he says, um, I don't have any kids. You promised I'd be a great nation. You promised my name would be great. You promised the truth is I don't have any kids. I'm sort of, a, which is kind of embarrassing. I, I go around telling myself and occasionally other people that God has made all these incredible promises, but there's nobody in the nursery. And my heir is a guy from Damascus who's a perfectly fine person, but not exactly what the promises sound like they have in mind. So what are you going to do about it? And we know the story. God says to Abraham, go look at the stars. That's what it'll be like. And then they have this ritual of covenant reaffirmation where they cut up the animals and walk through them and all of that. And the text says, as Paul picks up in Romans, it says he believed him and it was counted to him as righteousness. He trusted him. Abram trusted the Lord. But why? Uh, there still wasn't a baby in the nursery. All we had still were the words. And so it, it, Abram's leap of faith really is a leap of faith. He says, I, I, I believe you. I do. I'll wait for the affirmation. The part that the lectionary cuts out, I think, quite unfortunately, by the way, you should always read the cuts when the lectionary makes a cut, because usually the cutout part is the most interesting part and sometimes the most provocative part. But in the cutout part, we hear that uh, these descendants will have to be in Egypt for a long time. Abram knows, he's told by God, that he won't see the full conclusion in his own lifetime. The end of the story will not be his to know, not in this life. He's part of a long arc of salvation, and he must play his role. Uh, and Sarah must play her role. And we must all play our roles, because none of us will see the end. All of us are somewhere on the ark, and we may have a very important role like Abram's and Sarah's, or we may have a very minor role, uh, but it doesn't matter because we're all part of this great drama of promise and the receipt of promise. The second Sunday in Lent is about that, turning so that we can receive the promise. Turning takes many forms, but it leads to one end. Thank you for listening to these comments on these texts for the second Sunday in Lent. I look forward to future conversations with you. Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. 
If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu slash gst or email us at gst at acu.edu. Until next time. <laughs>